Some are fleeing war, poverty, and persecution. Others are simply hoping for a better future. Many risk their lives to reach the developed world. But does diversity make the West richer? We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. Or does it threaten to break it apart? My guest tonight believes more immigration means less social cohesion and wants tighter controls. Deport first, appeal later. But is restricting immigration necessary or is it xenophobia in disguise? I'm Mehdi Hassan, and I've come here to the Oxford Union to go head-to-head -head with Professor Sir Paul Collier, the renowned economist, UN advisor, and best-selling author. I'll be challenging him on whether immigration is a danger to Western identity and whether closing the door helps or hurts poor countries. Tonight, I'll also be joined by Titilola Banjoko, a British-Nigerian doctor and the managing director of Africa Recruit. David Goodhart, journalist, author, and an advocate of much tighter controls on immigration, and Philip Legrand, economist, former EU advisor, and a supporter of open borders. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Sir Paul Collier. An economist at Oxford University, his latest book is Exodus, How Migration is Changing Our World. <clears throat> Paul Collier, we're both, you and I, we're both the products of migration. You're the grandson, I believe, of a German migrant. Uh, I'm the son of Indian immigrants to the UK. In your book, Exodus, you say that while immigration into developed countries, from developing countries, has had economic benefits. In many ways, it's been very good. You also say that more and more immigration into the West poses a danger to social cohesion, risks diluting our culture, our national identity, and may undermine trust, cooperation, solidarity between members of the public. Those are pretty big claims. Some would say pretty controversial claims. You know, the debate on migration is polarized into two strident positions, the heartless and the headless. Um, Eddie, you sound to be volunteering to be the headless. I'm certainly not going to volunteer to be the heartless, oh, right? We can, we can find out tonight. Yeah. Of course migration is good. It's like, but it's like asking, is, uh, is eating food good? Right? If you don't eat food, you're dead. Mm. Right? But you can eat too much. Just to take your analogy, you don't stop eating food today on the basis that one day you might eat too much. And nor do you stop migration today on the basis that one day you could have too much. I'm not advocating stopping migration. You're advocating a tighter control, more, more restrictions. The reason for that is, is that immigration is driven by two things, income gaps and the size of the diaspora. As the diaspora builds up, migration tends to accelerate. So at some point, as it accelerates, it would become too much. Um, sorry, but we do the same thing with climate change, in case you haven't noticed. It's interesting you mentioned climate change because some of the reviewers of your book pointed out that it wasn't really ideal to compare migrants to CO2 emissions um, in the sense that, well, in the sense that if you start from the premise that CO2 emissions are bad and we should control them, it's almost implicit. You're saying you're a man in the middle. You're not first one of, of all, two extremes. First of all... But your general tone is very sceptical and quite negative. First of all, CO2 emissions are not bad. 
until the they become there. until they become an, in the range of a problem, right? CO2 emissions we've had over the last 2,000 years haven't been bad. The migration we've had to date hasn't been bad, right? It hasn't been bad, but in the book you suggest it has been bad for social cohesion in some parts, and that it will only get worse. If you look at the relationship uh, between diversity and either economic performance or well-being, um, then it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hump shape. If you get too much diversity, then what, what erodes is cooperation first, and that shows up in much lower levels of trust. In fact, there's reams of evidence here in the UK, for example, and in Europe, which suggests that actually the reason that societies are divided or lack trust or lack cohesion is more to do with deprivation and poverty and inequality and not to do with greater immigration, not to do with ethnic diversity. Let me just read you out one quote. A European study said in 2008 found no evidence at all for what we consider to be this claim uh, between diversity, greater diversity and lower trust. They say that the research you cited in your book, which is American research, is totally spurious when it comes to Europe. So there is a controversy. You're suggesting there isn't. No, first of all, there is. first of all, you're, you're, you're focusing on what is the case now in Europe, right? As opposed to what should I be focusing on? Uh, what would happen if there was a big increase in diversity? That's just, but that's then we're in the realms of my speculation versus your speculation. You talk about heartless and headless, and you being this kind of middle of the road pragmatist. Some of the language you use, many would say is not helpful, it's a little bit divisive, might play into the hands of people you and I both don't like on the far right. You repeatedly refer in the book, almost on every other page, to indigenous Britons or indigenous members of the population, which as you know has a certain resonance to some people on the far right. How do you define an indigenous Briton? What is an indigenous Briton? Well, we've got to have some sort of concept for the non-immigrant population. So what right? is it? I mean, we might as well use, might as well say indigenous for that. But what does it mean? Can you define from indigenous Britain? The, well, if we've got a concept of immigrant, okay. we've got to have a concept of non-immigrant. Okay, we? so, yeah? so what is the concept of a non-immigrant? What's the concept of an immigrant? Eddie? Well, am I an indigenous Britain? Were you born here? Yes. Well, then you're Britain, yeah. Okay, so yeah. it's people who are born here indigenous. That'll do, yeah. I mean, okay, no. so here's my question. In your book, you say that in the 2011 census, it was revealed that the indigenous British had become a minority in their own capital. The census showed that 63% of the population of London was born in Britain. The only way you can get a, a minority status is if you're white British. Then you're a minority in London, okay, but so British born. It's a phrase you've used in many interviews, many articles, in the Daily Mail, in okay, the New States. Then you, uh, you can look to the second generation. I mean, this is not... Uh, no, I'm asking a simple question. Is that wrong? It is wrong, isn't it? In your book, you say that the indigenous British are a minority in their own capital. They're not. Well, 63%. You, if you want to score a point, then... I'm not scoring a point. I'm asking a professor of economics, did he get a, a quite glaring error in his book? No, I and didn't. And repeated in the no, Daily I Mail, didn't. and repeated in the New no, I didn't. and repeated in the Economist. No, I did not get a glaring error. Right? Okay, well, correct It's me a then. perfectly meaningful statement, but the use so of the, the word... meaning to me. The use of the word indigenous, right... Can, but there are, there are various definitions you can have. I asked you for, for one two minutes ago, yeah, and you okay, said, and I gave you one. Right? So that doesn't apply to this? The one no, you it gave certainly, me doesn't, certainly doesn't apply to that. Right? So what does it apply to in this context? It applies to the, 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 the second generation. The so second right? generation, I'm not indigenous now, according to this sentence. No. Um, then, um, absolutely. 
Yeah. So right. am I or am I not indigenous? The, uh, of, of course you are, right? But, but, but I mean, I'm just trying to follow no, no. your logic. You, you oh. explain to me. No, seriously. Look, it's a serious question. All right. So, um, if um, there's a process of absorption of immigrants into the society, right? So some people wouldn't really be culturally integrated after several generations. Some people will be culturally integrated within a decade, right? Okay. So what the census shows is an approximation. Right. So where would, where would I and where would my daughter, second and third generation, where would we fit in that mold? By the sound of things, Betty, you fit absolutely as, as, uh, as, okay. as British, don't you? I mean, do, do you, you consider yourself as British? I do consider myself a British, but I read a book which told do me you, that, you, that, that, you, that according to the definition, <laughs> I'm not. So, and, you, you, and you moved the definition of me twice in the space you, of 60 you, seconds. Um, just one last thing before I go to our panel who've been waiting very patiently to come in. In your book, you talk about Migrants from developing countries tending to bring their own, quote, dysfunctional cultures with them to developed countries. And in support of this, you write, quote, unsurprisingly, Nigerian immigrants to other societies tend to be untrusting and opportunistic. How is that not a sweeping statement? Some might say racist statement. What's I've, the basis I've been working in Nigeria for many, many years, right? Nigeria is one of the lowest trust societies in the world. That's a different point, though, isn't it? It's one thing to say a society is a low-trust society. Another thing to say that Nigerian immigrants to other societies, i.e. a group of people, tend to be untrusting and opportunistic. That's pretty offensive if you're Nigerian, surely. Uh, I'm sorry if it causes offence. What I'm trying to suggest is that people tend to bring their culture with them. Okay. We ma I make a very important distinction between culture and race. Anybody from any race can adopt any culture. Okay, let's go to our panel, Dr. Titi Lola Banjoko. Uh, you're a British Nigerian doctor, advisor to the EU and the UN on migration issues. You're also the founder of Africa Recruit. What do you make of that? Uh, can I first say that um, I don't take offense to what you said because I know I'm not one of those you are defining. And I think you've taken the narrow end and you've used that stereo stereotype, <laughs> which is wrong, to define a whole community. If you say you've lived in Nigeria, you will know that there is a sense of trust of communities where people get together, Harambe, Ubuntu, it's across the African continent, where we don't even have agreements and we bring money, we share money with each other. So what's the level, is that not trust? Hmm. To me that is trust. Here we define it as crowd funding, but actually it's been going on in Africa hmm. for centuries. Hmm. So there is a very high level of trust. It's the level of trust of government, which you are confusing with the level of trust of society. Now, in terms of bringing habits to the country, which I call my country here, actually, there are some, you, you omitted in your books a number of good things that we've brought. One, a caring attitude, which is why there is no surprise that many migrants work in the care sector. Respect for elders. I respect you. You see, I, I said I don't take offense. I respect you. Don't you think that's a valuable thing mm. that we should all be sharing and learning? I mean, I read your book and I thought I defined it as a very good pub. You know, if we were in a pub, we will have a pub quiz. It's a storybook. There's no evidence. You contradicted yourself so many times. Okay, okay you've said, you, let, let's let Paul Colley come back in there. Do you want to come back okay. on the trust point and the um. evidence point? Uh, first of all, my own doctor is a Nigerian woman, so um, uh, 
I am able to distinguish between one and another. There are uh, local community level support systems which are high trust. Right? Um, but to say it's high, Africa's high trust, no. It's, uh, the, the, the really high trust society in the world is Japan. Okay, let's go, let's go to another member of our panel. David Goodhart is here. He's the author of the book, The British Dream. Um, and you in your book, David, unlike Paul, you don't talk so much about indigenous. You used the phrase, if I remember correctly when I read it, white British. Do you get how people sometimes are quite suspicious when they hear those labels? Yeah, but I do think it's one of the, the best things about the debate in the last few years is that we have been able to distinguish um, issues of race and racial justice from issues of the economic and, yes, in the cultural impact of very large-scale immigration. You do have very serious issues of integration and segregation. Almost half the ethnic minority population now live in wards where less than half of the population are white British. Now that seems to me a kind of concentration and a sort of separating out that is very unhealthy for a, for a good civic society where people do feel a mutual regard and they want to share. We don't uh, want to get into a statistical argument because obviously all this stuff is always contest contested by people on all sides. Is it about the, the, the racial composition of the population or is it about, as Paul asked me, you know, feeling British, feeling English, feeling European? Because again, they seem to be mixed messages. Well, I, th I, think, I think these things become sort of symbolic in a way. Um, no, I don't think it is about whiteness. Um, but I think it is about scale and speed of change. Let me bring in uh, Philip Legrand, who is also an economist, author of the book Immigrants, Your Country Needs Them. Um, the original question I asked to Paul, you can see where Philip's going to be coming from in the perspective. Um, <laughs> Paul made the comment at the start, and we talked about, you know, there are social and cultural costs to immigration. Not everything is good, not everything's bad. It depends how much. Uh, given his belief that immigration is going to rapidly increase in coming years, the whole multiplier effect, diaspora effect, is that a good enough reason, therefore, in your view, even as a supporter of migrants, actually, yeah, we do need to do something about it before it gets out of control and damaging and put some controls in? Well, first of all, there is no evidence uh, that diversity actually reduces trust or social cohesion. The evidence from Robert Putnam is from the United States, where they obviously they have a history um, of slavery and therefore polarized relations between whites and blacks. Studies in Europe don't find that at all. Second of all, his accelerator model is not a recognized model of migration. In fact, it's contradicted by the evidence. The idea that it, without controls, uh, that everyone moves and countries become depopulated is contradicted by the evidence. It's contradicted in, in Africa, where Niger is next to Nigeria. Nigeria is six times richer. Niger is not depopulated. Basically, there aren't border controls between them. It's contradicted within Europe, where uh, Sweden is six times richer than Romania. Romania is not depopulated. It's contradicted within the United States, where mainland United States is three times richer than Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico is not uh, depopulated. So this is just spurious fear-mongering. This is, you know, not evidence-based at all, and you're abusing your position as an economist uh, and claiming that evidence exists when actually it doesn't. Okay, let's let Paul Collier come back in there. <laughs> so that, that sort of argument um, really doesn't cut the mustard. The best single authority is the Frederick Dockier team. Their paper a couple of years ago called Diasporas finds that the single most powerful driver of immigration, of migration, is the size of the diaspora. 
But can you find any example of your accelerated model? I can't actually. Of there are, can't. Um, I, do, I do so in the book. Um, no, you don't. Actually, actually, I've read I, the book today. You don't actually. I'm you don't. You just assert. You draw lines. Okay, Philip. You, you made the claim, point. You claim expertise when you don't have it. You're Philip, not you a made, migration Philip, expert. Philip, you made the point. And you don't actually quote studies, con you know, backing up your arguments. I'm sorry. If, if you want, if you want examples of, uh, of acceleration, the example I give in the book uh, is Turkish Cyprus, um, where there are more Turkish Cypri Cypriots living in. Britain now than there are in Turkish Cyprus. I will come later, I hope, to what are the effects on well, the countries of origin. Thank you for doing the segue into the next discussion. That's exactly <laughs> what I want right. to ask you about. You say that it might not just harm developed countries in the future in terms of culture or solidarity, but that it actually could pose a real danger to the development prospects of the countries, quote, left behind. Um, you talk about kind of the harm and damage that could be done. What harm and damage are you referring to specifically? Emigrants or migrants are, um, uh, they tend to be the, the young, the enterprising, the skilled, the educated. Um, and people like that are, if you like, the fairy godmothers in any society. They're useful to others. And so a country like, say, Haiti, where about 85% of the young educated leave, yeah. that's debilitating. Many, many would right? say Haiti is an aberration given its history of natural disasters and ne being next door to the United States. But I take your point. Yeah. If, we were to, if we were to all agree with your thesis on this particular point about the poorest countries, why should I not try and leave Haiti and try and get a better job rather than stay in a country ruled by dictators, dominated by corruption, blighted by natural disasters, purely by the bad luck of my birth? People don't have the right to live anywhere in the world. But they have the right to leave their country. Um, That's a human right. Of course. You would admit, as you do in the book, just for context, I think it's something like $400 billion in remittances yeah. goes back from skilled migrants to those poor countries. If those people, because they're productive, skilled, energetic, if they'd stayed in their country, they would also have produced no, I'm not more gonna, than that's, There's no evidence billion. for that, Paul. That's, the, one of the, that's, what the, okay. that's what the critics say about your book. First there is all, no evidence that if you keep a skilled bunch of people in a hellhole, that hellhole will become heaven. Look, there's that, no evidence for that. that no. It's totally unfair. That, that is abusive language, Peggy. That what you describe as hellholes are the societies which absolutely have to catch up with the rest of the world. But you're implying the people leaving in stops no, from catching defiant. up. There's no evidence for that. The most important challenge for the 21st century is that the poorest societies catch up with the rest Agreed. of the world. Um, just on a philosophical level, I just wonder your view. Would it be a good thing, a morally commendable thing, for those poorer countries to put in emigration controls to stop those skilled, energetic young people from leaving in the first place? No. To be like North Korea or Cuba and no, keep everyone obvious, in? No, obviously not. Why not? Obviously not. Because there is no moral right to restrict exit. That is turning a country into a prison. How is it morally different to say you can't stop people from leaving, so what we'll do is we'll do that for you by stopping them from coming. What I'm advocating is people should come, get skills, get education, go back. Get but some for to come here to work and settle, you, do, you want less? I, I don't want less. I want to prevent an acceleration, certainly. Let's go back to our panel. Uh, Titi Lola, this movement of peoples, especially from the developing world to the developed world, can be, if the brain 
drain exceeds the brain gain, very damaging. What's your response to that? Actually, it's not just the developing countries. Even this country is losing skills to Australia, to Canada. So it's, it's all about people searching for opportunities. And people will continue to search for opportunities. A lot of people actually are going back to the continent of Africa, and I'm sure you know that. It's not about, so there is a lot of circulation going on. What, the, what we can do is restrict the flow of money from the very rich who take money from these countries and bring it to the West. I, I'm in battle with you to try and, uh, and break the banking secrecy which permits that. Okay. David, you've been a journalist for many years, been around the political scene. Surely you and I both know that when governments are making these decisions about restricting immigration and keeping foreigners out, it's not got very much to do with caring about de developing countries and their futures. Well, I mean, it's, it is you know, mainly, mainly reacting to domestic public opinion, although actually I think let's not you know, take people, take the brightest and the best from all those countries. And the, the area where this is most scandalous that we haven't spoken about is, is the area of healthcare. I think it's something like one-third of all the nurses working in London have come relatively recently from other countries, many of them very poor countries, that cannot afford to lose their trained healthcare workers. Uh, Philip Legrand, what's your response to David and Paul? There's a contradiction at the heart, again, of Paul Collier's book. I mean, in the beginning, he is, explains his theory of underdevelopment, which is that poor countries are poor due to what he calls dysfunctional social models. Now, if that's true, why would preventing skilled people change anything? It's the dysfunctional social model that makes them poor, so keeping the skilled people there, they're still going to be poor. I mean, and look at North Korea, it prevents emigration. Has that somehow made it rich? Your arguments simply don't stand up. They're absolutely incoherent, really inconsistencies. Not and again, incoherent. last point, last point, at the end, you then say, having said how terrible it is that there's skilled emigration from poor countries, you then say that actually rich countries should select migrants on the basis of skills and employability. You left Sheffield uh, to go work in Washington at the World Bank for your self-improvement. Since you're so brilliant, Sheffield presumably lost out as a result. Should you have been prevented from moving? I don't think so. Should you have stayed in you're, Sheffield, Philip? You're being <laughs> I chose my self-interest. There was a tension, as there is with a lot of migrants, between do I look after myself uh, or do I care about the people left behind? Well, some of them are doing both by sending back income to sell those countries. <laughs> the you keep missing that bit out. The average migrant from a poor country sends back a thousand dollars a year right? mm. that's not a great sum if, if they're bright energetic and skilled and they stayed in their country they probably generate more than a thousand that's a total a assumption probably i mean the evidence is not there that. is no evidence, evidence I'm, of sending I'm, back there's no evidence i'm sorry there really is no 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 you are counting formal remittances can i just correct oh. you there i'm a diaspora person there is a lot of informal remittances which okay. you have no idea about okay. we'll take a break we're going to come back uh, in part two to talk about one other area of the migration debate that causes a lot of uh, heat, uh, asylum and immigration and proposals for what to do with refugees. We'll also be hearing from our audience here in the Oxford Union. Uh, join us for part two of Head to Head after the break.
Welcome back to Head to Head on Al Jazeera. Uh, we are talking about immigration uh, with Professor Sir Paul Collier of Oxford University. In part one, we talked uh, about uh, immigration from south to north. We talked about uh, integration. Uh, we talked about the effect on the so-called left-behind countries. I just wanted to ask you this. One group of migrants that even the most hardline critics and opponents of immigration tend to put to one side and treat more generously our refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, most people think we have a moral and a legal obligation to open our borders to people fleeing conflicts and persecution, and you say the same uh, in your book, Exodus. Uh, but then you add this rather, uh, some might say, odd caveat. You say, when peace is restored, you say, people should be, quote, required to return. Just to clarify, would you forcibly repatriate refugees to their countries of origin against their will maybe, no matter how long they've been settled in a new country? Of course not. The core thing we should be focused on with conflict countries, the conflicts don't last forever, the conflicts end. Right? Um, and the post-conflict countries are the most vulnerable societies in the world. Very often they revert to conflict. And so again, a vital task is to try and make that post-conflict recovery um, as successful as possible. I work with a lot of post-conflict societies and governments, and the standard problem that governments face post-conflict is that all the skilled people have left. And so uh, I do think it's responsible to have policies which encourage people to go back. When you say Should required to return, that's, that would be an overstatement, right? But it's your overstatement. Yeah, okay, it's my overstatement. But it's, it's really to try and focus on the issue that it's, uh, of course, it's very important to protect the skilled and educated by taking them out of the society whilst the conflict's happening. But it's Just to clarify, while the conflict's happening, if it's going on for years, as many conflicts do, should they have the right to settle here and work here? That the presumption should be um, that people should be uh, provided with a safe refuge with, with some sort of presumption of return. Of course, most uh, refugees um, don't come to rich societies. They end up in ref refugee mm. camps. And so they're the real challenge, Agreed. much more important. You say, that, you say that most conflicts don't last that long. According to the UNHCR, the average refugee now spends 17 years as a refugee rather than nine years a decade previously. Some of these conflicts in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, even in Pakistan, violence doesn't seem to be abating at all. I mean, how do you say to people, now's the time to save? When do you decide it's safe? We must encourage well, you to go back. Well, quite often, um, there, are, there are peace settlements which do mark a, an end to conflict, a time when... So without a peace settlement, people can stay. But if there's a peace yes. settlement... Yeah, oh, sure. I th I, I mean, so Iraqis today, if we take a real-world example, Iraqis living in the West, would you be the, want them to be required to return or encouraged to return? Of course not. Of course not. Right? It's still in conflict, very obviously. Um, and while they're here with their families, they shouldn't integrate. They should, where possible, retain their links with Iraq so that when the conflict is over, which it will be, then they can go back 
and help rebuild their country. But if you've been in a country 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, 20 years, you've had kids, they've gone to school here, they've never seen that country that you moved no, from, absolutely. they don't speak the language, absolutely. why should they be required Ab to return no. to that place? No, of course not, but there's a, a desperate situation where there's a small group of people trying to restore a country desperately short of skilled people who know the society and the key resource to draw on is the skilled diaspora. Even in Afghanistan, one of my students last year, right, who's gone back, is trying to rebuild the society. Yes, He's brave. Presumably, he was a hero because he volunteered to go and do that. He didn't do that because the British government was pressuring no. to get out. But we have a duty of rescue in a context in which there's a larger duty to try and help rebuild these societies from being smashed up. Conflict is some not a agreed, permanent but thing. Some would say divorce those two debates. The refugee debate is too important to be tacked onto the development debate. The priority. The core refugee debate is not what happens here, it's what happens in the refugee camp. Well, it's interesting you raise that issue because, of course, a lot of people here talking about the issues of refugee and asylum, and you raise the issue in your book. Actually, the West as a whole doesn't take enough refugees to begin with. I think Britain takes less than 1% of the world's refugee population, and developing countries take something like 86% of the world's refugees, up from 70% a decade ago. Look, the refugees overwhelmingly are and are going to continue to be in countries that border the areas of the conflict. So the fate of refugees does not really depend on whether a few thousand more come to the rich societies. What matters is what happens to the millions Agreed. who are stuck. And so Agreed, but I, that doesn't change. I, that doesn't I, change. Our fundamental responsibility is to make the those refugee camps far better places with economic opportunity. mutually exclusive. That is, we could, it's peripheral. Well, it's peripheral. Hold on, Paul, Paul, it's peripheral because last year the British government took 90 Syrians. Not 90,000, 90 Syrians. And do now, you surely that's a shamefully tiny thing. do you understand figure. how many hundreds of thousands of millions of Syrians actually need refuge? Yes, I'd like us to give more money to refugee camps and also take in more refugees. Would you? Fine. Okay, yes. then. Good. But, the Bit of real, but the real balance of priority is the camps. Agreed. Let's go to our, let's go to our panel. <laughs> Titi Loloban, Joker. Paul talks about refugees should be keeping links with their, the countries they fled from in order to be ready to go back and help rebuild. I'm surprised that, I mean, I hope Paul knows that they already do that. And oh. many of them, I know of a lot of Afghans, healthcare professionals working in this country who go home regularly on medical mission trips to South Sudan, to Somalia. So in terms of, you've now counted your previous argument where you were saying these people shouldn't leave. These middle class people you've described actually are doing more. They take equipments, they take materials, they sacrifice a lot, okay. sacrificial giving. There's a difference between just throwing money out and sacrificing your life to okay. do this. Let's and you didn't acknowledge that in the book. Let me, let me bring in David Goodhart. David, you'll remember in this country, we talked about the UK context, a lot of the stuff about immigration, you talked about how the debate has changed. What's your position today on, that, on the refugee asylum part of this debate? Yeah, I think most people in this country still believe in the idea of providing asylum. I mean, one of the problems here is, though, that the definition of who qualifies for asylum has expanded and expanded and expanded. So there are now, on some calculations, perhaps one billion people out there in the world who could technically qualify to come here as an asylum seeker, uh, which I think is a, is a problem. 
Um, but then if you're thinking about places that are, that are experiencing civil war or natural disasters of, of one kind or another, you know, we should pay for you know, decent temporary um, you know, villages, cities, for, for people like that. And they can then keep an eye on what is happening in their country. They'll be closer to, to what's going on, and they will know they when it is safe to okay, return. I take your point. If they do reach here, and many do reach here through genuine persecution and are ended up here for several years, do you believe they should have the right to settle here? Have children. If they, if they are genuine, uh, you know, asylum seekers who are whose lives are in danger in some way in the country that they come no, from. I'm saying the danger's gone. We're several years down the line, but they've been here. They're working here. They've got no, kids I, in school I, I here. No, I think it is. I should think they still is. leave? I th yeah. I th I, uh, the presumption should be that they should go back. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Briefly, Philip Legrand. Yeah, there's a contradiction again in Paul's argument. <laughs> I mean, no, he he says only a t well, you agree only a tiny proportion of refugees go to the West. So if it's only a tiny proportion, why is it so essential for their country's future that that tiny proportion go back? Philip. <laughs> <laughs> who are the refugees who get to the West? They're the more educated, more able, the people best able to get out, um, the people with the biggest incentive to get out, are the most educated, right? Now, that's perfectly sensible. It's the rational self-interest of the people who are moving, Philip. And it's not just the highly skilled. It's, it's, it's the poor, it's the middle class, it's, it's, it's the, even the rich. It's all sorts of people just, just displaced from Syria. That's just not true. Philip, the, the people who have education are much more likely to come as far as the West than the people without. Okay, let's leave it there. Um, we're going to bring in our audience uh, to ask some questions, try and keep your points as short as possible. Let's go here to the front row, lady here in the front row, and then we'll go to the back. Isn't it arguable that um, in those countries where we have either started the conflict or we have prolonged the conflict, that we have a greater moral responsibility to take in more refugees rather than uh, giving the burden to the neighbours? Um, I also just want to say that under the 1951 United Nations Refugee Convention, uh, we have a legal obligation to take in genuine refugees, and the convention does not put a time limit on how long those refugees can stay. Okay. Yes, where, where, we, where we cause conflicts, we've obviously got more moral responsibility than where we didn't cause them. But um, we've still got a moral responsibility even where we didn't cause them because basically we should be navigating by need here. But, the, but, the, but to, just to, to reiterate, um, migration to the West is a peripheral aspect of what to do when there's a conflict. The really important thing is to help to rebuild the society after conflict whilst treating the vast number of refugees well during the conflict. What about the legal points you made that actually what you propose is illegal under international law to set a time limit on how long refugees can stay? I'm an economist, not a lawyer, and I <laughs> tend to think that, um, uh, that lawyers uh, look at things in a rather blinkered way that what we should what economists look at <laughs> what okay. economists look at is try to look at is what's best for society okay let's go to the lady in the row and then the gentleman next to her 
I'm a migrant from Malawi in Africa. There's been a lot, you've mentioned quite a lot about the damage that um, migrants from my part of the world do to UK culture. I want to know exactly what do you mean by that? When you talk about trust, to me the biggest abuse of societal trust on a massive scale lately has been linked with the Great Recession, which had nothing to do with people from my part of the world. And a lot of us become citizens as well. Our story becomes part of Britain's story. You know, isn't this more about living with difference and you're at ease with that? Yeah. I I'm sorry, if you've got a sense that I'm saying immigrants from Malawi or anywhere else have caused problems in Britain or anywhere else, I'm not, right? Um, you're, uh, um, you're misinterpreting um, pretty fundamentally uh, what I'm saying, right? Uh, so, um, so if they've not, can we have more of them? Well, let's go back to the beginning discussion that we had. Yes. You said, till now it's been good. Till now it's been good, but in the future it's going to be bad. That's what I'm struggling, I've been struggling with throughout. Well, Mary, you're not really struggling. Um, what, I'm, <laughs> what, I, what I say uh, is that there is a good reason to think that migration left to itself without controls would accelerate. Is that a red herring? Who's leaving it to itself? Who's, who's calling for migration without control? The population is growing by half a million a year. I mean, we're going to have a population of 80 million by 2050. I mean, nobody has any you objection that, David, to a particular individual, future, but so. it is about the scale. It's about the scale of change. Now, this audience is mainly, you know, highly educated, mobile, liberal. That, you know, they are comfortable, you're comfortable with change. M most people in most societies are not. They've not taken account of those perfectly normal human feelings. And Paul also says in his book that migrants should be selected on the basis of cultural distance. So actually he doesn't want people from Malawi. He wants more people who he considers similar to himself. Yeah. Okay, hold on. Let's well, that makes integration easy. Hold on, hold on, guys. It's the audience section. Panel's done. Um, let's bring in some more. Gentleman here, next, yes. Uh, yes, um, I wanted to say that um, there was this de debate between um, diversity and trust. But you know, I think trust is maybe overrated. I mean, I come from Ireland. We had two indigenous populations, Catholic and Protestant. They've been there for hundreds of years. They didn't trust each other, and they fought against each other and killed each other. And in fact, it might have been good if we had people from China or from <laughs> somewhere else maybe to actually go there. And I also think that what we don't need is trust, we need the rule of law. So you have a rule of law, and I might not trust you, you might not trust me, I, you're a stranger, I'm not from your village, you're from another village, you're from another religion, okay. but we exist within a rule of law, which okay. is an English tradition, and we get along. Okay. Okay. Um, clearly, polarised societies uh, are the worst nightmare, and so as you wittily point out, a bit of diversity that breaks polarization might be, uh, might be an improvement and probably would have been in Ireland. Um, the, the point about um, uh, law as a substitute for trust, do we want a society that has uh, mutual respect or do we want a society that moves beyond mutual respect to mutual regard? And the mutual respect is what you achieve through the law. You have to respect each other, like it or not, as it were. But a, um, a, a good society actually moves beyond mutual respect 
to mutual regard, because it's that move that actually builds willingness to be generous to other people. Okay, gentleman here in the second row. Just a question for the professor. Do you think that a, a, a sensible uh, policy for migration, you're talking about temporary migrants, might be to allow in only the worker themselves, to keep their families outside of the countries, to not allow them to vote, to only allow them to go back home maybe three weeks every two years, to keep them in inferior conditions, to give them worse health facilities. And the only reason I ask this is because it seems to work really well in Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and countries out Paul there. Paul Collier is not here to speak about uh, Arab regimes. He's here to speak about his book, so I asked him questions. It would be very odd, I think, if you all came here tonight and asked him a series of questions about how he thinks about how abysmally Gulf kingdoms treat their migrant workers. That would be a very odd one hour that me and Paul Collier spent talking about that. To be fair to the questioner, yeah. um, I do discuss the Gulf migration <laughs> policies in the book. Well, and what I say about them... Well, hold on, hold on. And what I say about them is that um, for somebody like Philip, they're perfect. Um, they get all loads of economic gains, so they tick all the economic boxes, and I that, they are, don't, don't and that they are absolutely um, disgusting and not something that a Western society well, could don't contemplate. Don't slander me and uh, don't oh, put words into my mouth, thank you. Here's a point. Why don't we let more of them into the UK? That's what I'd like to see. Would you like to see that as well? Because a lot of those people would like to come and work here, I'm sure, but you and David would be the first people at the airport saying, go home. No, this is not <laughs> fair. OK, then. Let's um, go back to the audience. Can we take some more questions? We're back to theatre. Let's take... Uh, let's take oh, OK, let's take this gentleman who's been waiting very patiently here in the, in the jacket, second row. Mike's coming to you from a stand-up. My name is uh, Ivo Kuka. I fled uh, from the country because of a problem caused by the British. And on my arrival here, I was detained for several months before, after illegal battle, I won my case and was given the refugee status. So my question to you, according to your book, is uh, how do you plan to get refugees who've been here for more than 17 years to return and rebuild their countries with their kids? And will that involve forceful removal and forceful deportation, which will cause re-traumatizing effects to these families? No, of course not, right? I mean, uh, um, the, um, so let me be clear about that. I'm not, I'm not advocating forced repatriation. I don't know which country you're from. Cameroon, Southern Cameroon. Cameroon. Okay. Um, the, um, but the, I mean, we could go around the circle again, but no, I'm, I'm not. You're, you're, Britain is now your home, and it should stay your home, right? Um, but, uh, there's clearly a need in the Cameroon to, uh, for, for some people to help um, build that society so that it catches up with Britain, so that future generations in the Cameroon don't face this huge income gap and uh, lack of civil rights. David, hold on, we'll take some more we're running out of time. Gentleman there in the third row, yes? It strikes me that a lot of this discussion has been about self-interest versus um, you know, interest for the community. I myself am from Malaysia, but I've been raised in the US. I have an American accent. How would you engender this sense of community values? What do we need to do for that so that at least the people that aren't forced migrants are interested in going back? Um, many migrants reconcile that tension by actually doing a lot for their original societies. Um, uh, and that, but that is a a process that's to be 
be basically to be, to, to be celebrated and encouraged. But I think it's very important that um, we shouldn't just look at, uh, at self-interest. Um, there's a sort of libertarian cult, which is quite common in, in economics, which basically reduces to uh, people should be free to pursue their self-interest. And I think there are real limits to that. Well, one last question for me before we finish. Um, there's a lot of ignorance, obviously, on this subject, a lot of fear-mongering from certain uh, sections in the political uh, spectrum. Um, opinion polls suggest that a lot of British people, a lot of French people, a lot of Americans, a lot of Canadians uh, overestimate, for example, how many migrants are living in their societies. There's a lot of fear, fear of change, to quote David. Um, what do you say to people who say, that when we obsess about immigration in this way, when we have this perspective, um, and when you write about the f the, your worry about the future accelerating rate and the harm that may come, you're simply playing into that hysteria, you're playing into that ignorance rather than kind of challenging it or controlling it. First of all, uh, I really, whatever I can be accused of uh, creating Europe's hysteria about migration, I'm not guilty, right? No, nobody's, nobody's accusing no, you of that. So. No. We'll all agree um, on that. What I, what I represent my wider point, which I was trying to make yeah, about some of the yes. hysteria around this debate. What, what we've got is a polarised and strident debate in which the extremes shout a lot and the centre stays silent. Um, because centre politicians just uh, want the subject to go away. And that is a dereliction of duty on the part of the politicians of the centre. We need to seize the debate to say it's not um, migration is terrible, migration is wonderful. Migration is a relatively minor process for the rich countries that needs to be managed bearing, taking into account the rather more important interest of the poor societies from which these people are coming. And, and, of course you would, and of course you would acknowledge, I think there's a statistic out there that I came across that 97% of the world's population actually live in the country where they were born. Absolutely. And this is 3%, we're talking I about think the 3%. I think I put that in the book, right? I mean, th that we're talking about a, a tiny element. The reality for the future is not that we all turn into a global soup. The reality for the future is people will live predominantly 97% in their own countries. Um, actually, the big migration flows, if we look a century hence, the big migration flows will have gone down, not up. Um, one thing in which Philip's wrong, which I, uh, is a nice point on which to end, is that... Um, is you that, just said migration um, flows are going down, is not up. Migration I I is, is that migration is not an integral part of globalisation. Globalisation of trade, of capital flows, is actually an alternative to moving people. We shouldn't be moving people to jobs. We should build a world in which jobs move to people. Paul Collier, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for joining us here on Head to Head in the Oxford Union. Thank you very much for our audience here in the Oxford Union, our wonderful panel of experts. Thank you very much for watching at home. This debate is not going away. Good night.